Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Kate Fakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki tō tātou ao whānui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National, and now. The government announced last week that it wants to make New Zealand predator-free by the middle of the century. I wanted to hear from some of our leading eradication experts about that idea, so I convened a conservation summit. It was an interesting challenge as we used Skype to call in James Russell from the University of Auckland. He was at a conference in Czechoslovakia. Andrea Byram from Landcare Research was in Christchurch and freelance eradication expert Pete McClelland was in the United States. For the rest of the show, you'll hear some of the key points we talked about. Now, this is just part of a broader and longer discussion that you can find on the Our Changing World webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. After the rats arrived in New Zealand and, and we appreciated the damage they caused, the real landmark event in New Zealand was that invasion of Big South Cape Island by rats in the 1960s, which uh, the Wildlife Service, Don Merton and, and Brian Bell observed. And, and at the same time, the rat invasion of the Noises Islands in uh, the Hauraki Gulf. And it was being able to respond to those events with both uh, a rat eradication on the Noises Islands and uh, bird translocations on Big South Cape Island that set the scene for the next 50 years of, of conservation in New Zealand, which has been scaling up our uh, eradications of rats to larger and larger islands to where we're at today, which is uh, nearly half of New Zealand's offshore islands are, are predator-free, and we have most of the uninhabited islands cleared of pests now. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about our ecology and, and what's going on here with these species of introduced animals? The problem in a nutshell is that our native flora and fauna haven't evolved in the presence of the introduced mammal species that we now have here. That is a particular problem when it comes to introduced predators preying on native fauna. And without going into too much technical detail around the ecology, essentially what that means is that most of these species are secondary prey. So in the case of rats and mice, they're primary prey for stoats. And so they, their population abundance keeps stoat abundance at a very high level. And quite often what that means is things like mohua or many of our forest bird species or a lot of other species in the system, lizards and invertebrates as well, the big-bodied invertebrates like weta, are highly vulnerable because the predation levels that they experience or encounter in the bush every day are well above what they would have experienced historically. And they, their populations just can't cope, and that's what's driving them into decline. And we still have a lot of species that are declining slowly now um, compared to in the past where we've experienced extinctions, but we've certainly still got a real problem. 
The other side of that equation too is the fact that there are interactions amongst these invasive animals. So we know, for example, that there's competition between rats and possums for the choicest food in the forest. And we also know that there's predatory interactions, as I mentioned, between things like stoats and rodents. And so what that means is you can't really consider one species in isolation of another. And that is partly, I think, behind focusing on these top predators and going for them first and saying, let's deal with all these species at once in a multi-species context. The risk, of course, is that we're still going to end up with a mouse problem or a hedgehog problem or something else. But at least it's starting a national conversation around this issue. So remind us, what are the predators that are going to be targeted under this predator-free 2050 project? What was announced was that uh, it's rats, primarily ship rats, and also possums and mustelids, mainly stoats. And then there is some mention of feral cats, but they have been very careful around that. So the focus is very much on feral cats, obviously going nowhere near domestic moggies. And mice aren't being mentioned, hedgehogs aren't being mentioned. Not at this stage, no. Peter, I'll call you in now. Uh, rodent eradications in New Zealand, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we've come from and where we've got to in terms of the scale of what we've done up until now? Rodent eradications have evolved in, uh, over time from the, the best known one was Breaksea Island in Fiordland, which was led by Roly Taylor and Bruce Thomas, and it was a hand uh, bait stations on the ground operation. And while that technique uh, did continue and evolve, was used on Olver Island and elsewhere, it had very great limitations on the scale it could be used. So the big breakthrough was when aerial operations started being used. And that's what's allowed us to take on islands uh, as big as, as Campbell Island, or more recently the, um, the Brits have taken on, uh, just completed South Georgia Island. And it's the, the use of aerial operations and the anticoagulant toxins have just allowed us to upscale to the point where we're largely limited by the available resources and the uh, social aspects of, of um, rodent eradications more than, than the tools that we've got for island eradications, that is. Okay, that social aspect of it is really important. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience on Australia's Lord Howe Island? Well, it would, would be the first truly inhabited island, definition being with a permanent community to have a, a rodent eradication undertaken using an aerial operation. And with a the community there, you get a, a range of views and not everybody supports the project, which is to date working on uninhabited islands. We've been able to, to do what we've needed to do uh, with spreading the bait, but suddenly you're dealing with effectively private land, access to houses, and that changes the whole dynamic. So that project has been delayed while additional community consultation has been undertaken. There are other projects on inhabited islands in the planning stages, some of them well advanced, but to date nobody's actually achieved one yet. Social licence and getting communities of people on board. Andrea, would you like to comment about that? 
James and I were actually musing on email this morning about this very topic, and um, James commented to me that many of the scientists who have been asked to comment in the media over the last little while have been biological scientists. They've got a biological background. We know a lot about things like how animals move in their environment, their survival rates, what they eat, all that kind of thing. We know a lot less about the social side of this equation and how people are going to respond to such an ambitious goal. I'm really interested, I think, in boosting social research that goes alongside this kind of initiative to really understand people's concerns and to really pick out what the drivers and motivations are for things like getting involved in community-based restoration or pest control projects, and as well as better understanding why they might have such vehement opposition. And really, I think this is a fantastic opportunity. It's actually our children and our grandchildren who are going to be making the final decisions about novel and new technologies that we don't even know exist yet and deploying those technologies in the environment. So we actually have a, an opportunity to start that conversation now that says nothing's going to go out there tomorrow or next week and not even in the next five years. You've got some time to think about it. What are the concerns how do we get that better understanding of why we need to do this? And is there, are there technologies where the public are just going to flat out refuse to ever go there? And if that is the case, then we shouldn't be spending money on development of those technologies at all. We should be focusing on things that we know in the future are going to be acceptable. But I think there's going to be a big role for better social research and gaining that social license to operate right from the get-go, getting people on board right at the start. That's particularly important for our Māori communities. They really want to know what is happening with their whenua or their land and their environments. And likewise with everybody in the urban landscapes, how are we going to deal with rats in urban landscapes? What is it going to take to convince people that it is worth doing this? So lots of good stories are going to need to be told. I think painting a bit of a vision is going to be really important here. Yeah, I totally agree with Andrew on that, that it is, we we have underplayed the social aspects and the social science to date. Most people, including myself, are you know, well aware of the biological aspects of, of rodent eradication. We're not social scientists. We're not used to dealing with people. But we have to bring the community along. They have to know what the benefits are both for the community for themselves and also what the risks are and make an informed decision we, we've got to the stage now where we can't just carry on because we know it's good for conservation We and, so, and it reflects across all factors of conservation these days, we need to bring the community along in, the, in this journey that we're aiming for 2050 and with their support it's amazing what will be achieved and, and with their opposition it's amazing the hurdles that will be in place with the biology of eradications, we know we have to expose 100% of the, the target species. And so the question I'm left grappling with on the social science side is, is do we need to have 100% community support to achieve uh, eradication in an inhabited uh, area context? Or could we actually 
settle for less. But even if it's less, it still might be um, 99 or 95%, which is an overwhelming amount of support. And some of the, the social science research in New Zealand shows that we have over 95% support for uh, pest control measures. But uh, I think even working towards achieving that consistently across New Zealand will, will require some real social innovation to go with some of the, the scientific innovation we're looking at. But I'm, I'm quite optimistic about that because as a nation, we've always been small and, and very active and, and socially innovative from uh, movements such as the women's suffrage movement to, to more recent things we've seen, such as the, the huge changes within a generation with regards to, to just the seatbelt culture or, or attitudes to smoking. And so just as uh, nobody would uh, throw their rubbish out on the street and just treat it like that, we could equally expect in the future no one will just allow rats to be in their backyard because it's not considered socially normal or, or socially acceptable to behave like that. Yes, I'd like to add a little bit more to that, Alison. I think it is really important to understand that New Zealanders really like having native animals and, and well, native flora and fauna in general, and that certainly extends to our farming communities. So there are already surveys that have been done quite recently by uh, Lanky Research. The Survey of Rural Decision Makers is a very interesting thing that's online that's worth drilling into for people. Um, many, many people really want to have native biodiversity back in their landscapes, even if they're a dairy farmer. And so that's really the sea change that we're going to require here is raising that awareness of what we can have. The other conversation I think we really need to have is an honest conversation about economic productivity because part of the reason why we've seen such cross ministerial support for this initiative, I think, is because the message has been heard that New Zealand's environment is absolutely central to its economy. And it's really nice to see that support from Minister Guy, for example, sitting alongside Minister Barry right behind the Prime Minister saying, this is important to, enough to us from a tourism perspective and from a farming and horticultural perspective that we want to jump on board and we can do both. It's a both and and not an either or. So there's some really amazing community and business support that's already swinging in behind this. And we know from some social research surveys that we have that strong, strong support from the community. And as James said, is it worth getting to 100% support or can we do it with a few less people on board but knowing that predators move around landscapes and will eventually get caught on a block from a landowner who is supportive, that sort of thing. So what I'm hearing is this idea that it will, it will benefit our biodiversity and it will also benefit our economy, and that's part of a story that we need to tell to get people on board, and that getting people on board is the first sort of great step we need to do. Yeah, and I think to get people on board, like I say, we need to paint that vision. And to me, part of the vision has to be bringing our, our farming and our rural communities much closer to get together with the conservation sector. And we're already seeing that. The, the Cape to City project in Hawke's Bay was actually mentioned in the Beehive press release the other day as a as an example of a flagship project where it is going for thousands of hectares of predator control, not, not eradication yet, but large-scale control or suppression of predators 
across primary sector landscapes, uh, wineries, horticulture, dairy and beef, right across those landscapes. And most of the communities are on board with that. So, and the reason is that they actually, there are already hints that there will be some economic benefit from doing that. And a good example um, that work, of work that has been done there is reducing the toxoplasmosis loading in sheep in that landscape, which reduces abortions in sheep and therefore can only be a good thing for, from a farming profit point of view. And that's just one small example. There'd be many others. I think that just echoes how broadly across different value systems that pest control really benefits there are the values to the biodiversity in and of itself. The, uh, the economic values, there are the uh, medical values from removing some of the, the zoonoses that uh, rodents and other pests travel around, and also the, the instrumental values just to humans in and of themselves, both to ourselves today, from the pleasure we derive from doing this conservation and seeing these species uh, conserved, the native species, but also the instrumental values to the next generation by, by using language such as we are doing this for the next generation because it may not happen in many of our own lifetimes. That's interesting because they have set a date to it. They have set 2050. So let's have a talk about how all of this might happen and we can debate the time frame as we do that. Pete, can you just fill us in a bit? You've talked about aerial dropping and use of toxins and, and poison baits. What are our current suite of tools that we've got to eradicate introduced predators? The only proven tool that we've got for, for rodents on large scale is the use of toxins. Uh, there's some great work going on with self-resetting traps, but that's still got to be proven uh, for the eradication scale. There's different ways of dispensing toxins. There's a variety of traps. And then they're looking at some of the work I think Andrea and others are looking at with different biological controls as well. But we're still a long way, I think, from implementing them even for control operations, let alone getting down to, as James said, that you know, targeting 100% of the individuals. That's, we've, we know that that's difficult on an island. You start putting it into an area where you have reinvasion from the neighbouring areas. If you don't do them at, at the same time or very close together, it becomes another whole issue. What I would like to pick up on, I think, is the potential for biological control technologies. And again, that's the bit where we're going to have to have really robust public and open, and open public discourse on this. Because realistically, with any of these large-scale island situations, the bottom line issue is cost per hectare. And deploying things at scale is going to be a massive step change in the way that we actually do pest control in New Zealand. And so at the moment, you know, with the best will in the world, we can kill off 95% of possums, for example, at about $20 per hectare. That's a total cost, not, you know, that includes everything, including the labour costs and the bait and all those other things as well. It goes up very significantly when you, you get down to um, less than 5% of the possums that were originally there on the landscape. And so the costs go up when you get to really reduced numbers of animals at a landscape scale. So we're going to have 
to think about biological tools that will self-disseminate in the environment in order to massively reduce that cost. It's probably going to be the only way to go. There are a lot of advances in those technologies since New Zealand last considered this more than 15 to 20 years ago. So as you've heard us talk about probably in various interviews, there is this Trojan female technique that gets talked about. There are gene silencing options which um, prevent animals from um, being able to, for example, metabolise proteins properly or whatever it might be. And then there are there is also this thing called gene drives, which people have spoken about. Just tell me a bit more about gene drives. So I'm not the technical expert, but gene drives are essentially a means of editing a gene so that you get a piece of the genome that you really want. And people may have heard of this in relation to the spread of malaria or the Zika virus by mosquitoes overseas. And so there are genes on the mosquito genome that can help the organism develop resistance to malaria. And geneticists in a lab situation have worked out how you can edit the gene in order to build that resistance component of the genome uh, into the entire population. I won't go into the details of how you can do that, but there's this new technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows the gene editing to occur and replicate itself through the population. Now, that's really interesting from the point of view of wiping out malaria from humans, literally. That's a very important ethical conversation to have. And it becomes more important ethically when you start to think about whether you could drive the Y chromosome through an entire population of, for example, mice or rats, and change it to an all-male population, which eventually means it would die out naturally. So this is sort of a, it's kind of splitting hairs, if you'll excuse the pun, around gene editing versus genetic modification. Genetic modification is when you actually insert a gene from another organism into the genome of, of, of the organism of interest. This is actually just editing its own genome to enable you to get the trait that you want, in this case, maleness, into the entire population. The risks around gene drives are that once you let it go, it can go. But geneticists are also working on techniques to stop the gene editing happening at a certain point. So you can imagine that while we have rats as a problem in New Zealand, they are a native species somewhere. So what if it got away from New Zealand and went into a native rat population internationally? So there's quite a lot of conversations to be had around the world about these new technologies and their enormous potential, but also what the risks are. And again, having those open and frank conversations and laying it all out there in terms of benefits and risks, I think is really worthwhile. There's an amazing TED talk by a woman named Jennifer Kahn about gene drives. It's only about 10 minutes long. And if your audience is interested, I highly recommend Googling that TED Talk and having a bit of a listen because they lay out the pros and cons really clearly. James, I'd like to come to you. Last year, you and Andrea published a paper together in which you calculated the cost of 
making New Zealand predator-free. Remind us what that figure was and how you came at it. The figure overall was about $9 billion for the entire project across the the 50-year time frame that we were looking at. And that was a a reasonably high-end estimate because it was based really on that cost per hectare for the multi-species eradication on Rangitoto and and Mototapu Islands. And so to some extent, we're aware that that is going to be a, a maximum cost because Um, Certainly we expect through the scientific funding that's been made available that scientists will be able to explore different avenues and uh, and pick the ones that look most promising, but also at the same time because we know that we simply couldn't do uh, Rangitoto and Motatapu and scale that to the entirety of the country. What we're not talking about here is uh, is what um, Andrea and Pete have already touched on, which is that our current methods is aerial distribution of poison. We're not going to be able to do that um, across any larger scales because it's inefficient and because we don't want to anyway because of all the the risks that that entails. So what Predator Free New Zealand 2050 is about is trying to develop these these new tools so that we can apply those. And possibly things we haven't even thought of. I think almost certainly it will will involve things we we haven't even thought of. And so it's really great that scientists have been given this latitude, which they haven't had so much in in recent um, constrained funding times, to explore different things, um, even though there's a a chance inevitably that some of them won't pan out. But if we're allowed to investigate 12 of them, it's possible that two might go through to to trials and one of them will end up being the new silver bullet. In a sense, this is the government laying down a challenge, going, okay. Here's a challenge. It's really ambitious. Can we do it? But I'm curious to know whether the three of you think that it actually is possible, either within the time frame the government has suggested, 2050, or, in fact, within the next 100 years. Let's be a bit more generous in time. Start with you, Pete. I don't want to be pessimistic, but 34 years is, uh, well, it seems like a, a long time. Uh, think about how long we've to have taken to get to where we are now. I think it's doable. The big thing is the resources. The more resources that can be put into it sooner, because it is about developing new techniques. It's not eradicators like myself carrying on as we have done in the past. It's going to be up to the scientists, both working on the eradication techniques and the social scientists, as we've said. And if those can, can move things forward, I think, yes, it's achievable. But at the same time, we don't want to lose the gains we've got. So we've got to keep remembering, at the same time as we aim for a pest-free New Zealand. We don't want to take our foot off the throttle of of controlling pests in the meantime so that we still have something to protect by 2050. This is a tricky question, isn't it? And it's the one that everybody asks us. I think Pete is absolutely right. We are actually going to have to work really hard on the -the over-the-horizon novel technologies side of this equation and front load the research. And I, every scientist says they need more money. Of course we do. But actually in this case, we are going to need to, to really step up and invest in this as New Zealand Inc. And I have actually been working quite hard with DOC and others to make sure that we actually do connect the dots here and do think about this as a New Zealand Inc. problem. And if we are going to invest in these over-the-horizon technologies, we need to decide that as a country. I think the other side of what's really going to be needed here is to bring the public on board, as we've already discussed. And that's going to be a really important piece of the equation. 
And then we're going to need to do both of those things, the big over the horizon technologies and strategies, as well as the public discourse, alongside all the tools that we've already got in the toolbox. So we can't drop the ball there. We've got to keep going on the momentum we've already got, which is the here and now. But is it possible? Yes, eventually. I wasn't around when the Apollo program was launched, so I, I have no idea whether they actually um, had a priori dates uh, set for achieving that. So, uh, but I do hope to be around in, in 2050. Um, in fact, that would coincide well with my retirement party, so I hopefully could retire proudly if it was 2050. But I think very much uh, that date is, is almost a, a political um, aspiration rather than a, an actual real one that we need to adhere to, whether it's um, earlier than 2050 or perhaps later than 2050. Like Andrea, uh, I think we will get there because it's just the trajectory we've been heading on for the last 50 years. Anyway, I think my major concern probably is not whether we can do this, but whether in, in 10 years or, or at 2050, it's still going to be the, the major threat to our native biodiversity or, or something that we can nationally still focus on. In, in particular, we, we know the emerging challenges of climate change are just going to become more and more challenging and particularly they're going to start swamping some of our smaller islands um, in New Zealand and around the world. So we need to focus on scaling to larger islands anyway, but perhaps uh, some of the major threats to our, our most precious native species will have changed from, from what they are today, which is the, the predations of these invasive predators. The other really important aspect to this is that it has to be apolitical. So in other words, this government now has hung their hat on a really major conservation goal, which is absolutely fantastic. But in the next 34 years, it's not going to require just this government. It's going to require the one after that and after that and after that as well and so on. So I think, you know, having New Zealand put a stake in the sand, make it independent of governments or ministers is a really bold step. And I hope that continues and that we don't lose that momentum. I've been travelling uh, internationally this week while this uh, announcement has been made and it's been um, really exciting. I've been in the, the Czech Republic and a, a scientist, a, a rodent control biologist, came up to me yesterday and, and just said that he read in the local Czech news translated that uh, New Zealand was, was embracing this bold statement and it's, it's really just um, set the, the media world alight for, um, for the entire week and so it's, it is just showing the leadership that we have in New Zealand. We can be the Harvard University and the Stanford University of uh, island conservation for the world and, and the world is looking to us and, and they're really excited that New Zealanders have been so, so scientifically and socially innovative in this space. A big thanks to James Russell from the University of Auckland, as well as Andrea Byram, Director of the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge, and eradication expert Pete McClelland. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're RNZ Science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.